This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 353. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and I'm joined today with a special guest co-host and just overall awesome guest, Jeff Gonzalez of Trident Concepts and uh, also direct, director of training at the yeah, at the range at Austin. That's a mouthful. It can be. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot of officiality going on there. <laughs> yes, sir. So I am thrilled to have you on. I think this is your third appearance on the show. Is that right? Um, Something like that. Like, I feel like you're right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe four. It could be. It's been a, I think you with there's a couple other people that have been on a few times, but uh, I would say you're definitely the highest profile guest. Wow! To be I, on this many times, I feel <laughs> I am very flattered, and I enjoy this. I do. I, I enjoy coming to this, coming onto this podcast. It's a it's a great opportunity to to discuss something that's really important to me, and the fan base is obviously right in line with that um, that subject matter. So it works out really well. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And so uh, I'll just tell folks briefly what we're going to discuss today. First of all, today's, ti- today's title of the episode is Learning Concealed Carry the Hard Way with Jeff Gonzalez. And because you have a unique story and background to how you first were sort of thrust into c- carrying a gun concealed. And so you've agreed to come on the show and share a little bit of that experience, at least what what is appropriate for you to share. For sure. Uh, and because some of that was from back in your operator days. <laughs> and uh, but we're going to also cover some of the things that uh, I recently had the pleasure of learning from you directly in the construct constructor. Here I go again. <laughs> so. <laughs> In our show prep, we're talking about this is the second time. I am shortening. Awesome. You are. You're just all about abbreviations right now. Brevity. Brevity so, is cool. So, folks, listen to this. I, I'm trying to say the Concealed Carry Instructor <laughs> Development Course, and I keep going right to Constructor. I like that. It's kind of cool. It's really short and sweet. If you just go see Constructor, that would be better. I might have to trademark that course and i have a background in construction so i've been a constructor (laughs) there you go that's it that makes it all better that makes it all better yes that was a blast we had such a good time out there yeah so we'll we'll talk about that and and some things learned and and you know also i mean you have a very professional approach to teaching concealed carry and Mm -hmm. and teaching instructors how to teach about concealed carry and we had a wonderful time here in colorado in that course and I'm so gracious to you for you know being willing to come out and put that on. And it was a great time. I, I'm 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 glad we were able to make that work. The time of year was perfect. I mean, as far as the weather was concerned, great group of guys. I mean, we. I mean, I know we'll cover this in greater detail when we get there. But we had such a collection of folks from all across the country. So that was pretty awesome. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Now today's episode, by the way, we have we have some honorary sponsors, whether they agreed to it or not. There's no contract or anything, but <laughs> but because you're here, yeah. Trident Concepts, an honorary oh. sponsor. So yes, right on, <laughs> right on. 
So folks, you got to go and uh, visit tridentconcepts.com, see everything that Jeff's got going on training wise and, and a lot of, and of course your store there too. You sell, you sell some really great products on your store. Yep. And you know, folks, we have the, uh, the, uh, Tacos cards, uh, T-A-C-O-S-T that sometimes people get confused about that. And a lot of times I get emails, Jeff, or, or messages through our Facebook, people saying like, heard you talk about those tacos cards. <laughs> well, it is Taco Tuesday, just to be, <laughs> and you know, full disclosure, it is Taco Tuesday. So we get away with it a little bit. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, they definitely spell T-A-C-O-S, tacos, you know, I'm like, well, I love tacos, but I like tacos cards, I think almost better, although they're not edible. So there is that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess in a pinch, you could eat them if you had to, if you had to destroy the evidence, there's, there's always, they, they come out a little rough on the other end. <laughs> anyway, and then also uh, the range at Austin. So folks, if you're in the uh, Austin, Texas area, uh, you might, or if you want to make a trip there, you might pay a visit to the range at Austin. Uh, you could even take uh, classes or uh, maybe from Jeff directly personally or okay, some, from some that. of his select instructors that he trains so very well. And uh, to find out more about the range at Austin, go to therangeaustin.com. Today's episode official sponsor and uh, we're so thrilled to have them they're still relatively new as an official sponsor of the concealed carry podcast and that is ccw safe great which is appropriate having you on because for sure you, you you have some ties there and so ccw safe self-defense coverage is pretty awesome i think mm. you'll you'll agree i do yeah we, we definitely encourage it so one of those conversations that we had in the instructor course yep absolutely Folks, uh, you can always head over to concealedcarry.com forward slash insurance, and you can see a great comparison chart looking at all these different self-defense coverages that are out there. Mm -hmm. And you can see how CCW Safe stacks up against everybody else. Uh, One thing that's not obvious on that chart is how they are the only company that has been truly tested and proven to stand behind their members by winning a murder one trial. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's huge. I think that just speaks volumes as far as the capabilities of what a membership and CCW Safe has to offer. So, if you want to learn more, check out CCW Safe. Head on over to ccwsafe.com. All right, Jeff, let's jump into it. No further delay. No further delay. Yes, sir. So, again, I kind of want to go back to, and you shared some experiences in that instructor. I almost said constructor yet again. Then I stopped. You caught yourself. Concealed carry instructor development course of which I'm I'm proud to say I passed, which uh, you did not make it easy, sir. (laughs) Well, maybe you could say that you just were up to the task. (laughs) But it was a challenging task. It was, it was, uh, I, I was really pushed in some ways I didn't anticipate. You know, I've been in some other instructor level courses and it's like, yeah, show up. And like, honestly, Jeff, in most instructor level courses, I'm a, I'm a good enough shooter that I don't really stress too much about passing the course, especially on the, on the shooting side of things. Mm-hmm. And yours was one that throughout the weekend, I'm like, I think I'm doing good enough. I think I'm doing good enough. I think I'm doing good enough, but I don't know for sure. Oh, shoot. I dropped that shot. Darn it. <laughs> I, I can sympathize. Yeah, I know. I, it's, it, it is. I mean, the, you know, it's one of the things that we want all of the folks that are going to represent us to have a minimum skill level 
from a firearms point of view, you know, the, the shooting, the gun handling, the marksmanship, all of that, we want them to have a minimum skill set. And honestly, I, I don't feel like it's that hard, not, not that hard, but that we're not asking for that high of a level. We're just asking yeah. for a very consistent demonstration across the board. So all the various modals that you got exposed to, you know, we're looking for you to be able to manage all those modals to a minimum level. And, um, yeah, I think that's what gets people a lot of times. It's like there's a lot of things that come at them sideways that they weren't expecting. And when you kind of get put into some um, areas that maybe you don't do enough work on, you can kind of feel that stress mounting. And uh, from the concealed carry point of view, there's a couple things that we really harp on. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the people that made grave errors in the instructor course were, uh, I would say, just about every – mistake that we see at the instructor level course is a result of shooters shooting outside their skill set, mm-hmm. meaning they're, they're shooting way too fast, faster than they really should. And as a result, they miss too many shots or they put a shot in the white and yep. that, that hurts them really hard. And that's one of the things that we're really trying to get across to people is the ability to modulate your speed based on the degree of difficulty for the shot required. And that I think is something you did really well. You know, you were able to go fast when you needed to, but you were also able to kind of control that speed to make the precision shot that you needed to, or the, the, the high demand of whatever that shot might've been called for. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, it, it, well, and like I said, it challenged me and I, 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 I felt like I did okay. You know, even though I learned that the particular rounds I was shooting were yeah. uh, hitting quite a bit high with uh, those particular sites that I, and that was, that was a mistake I made. I mean, I, I wanted to order the, the, rounds I normally shoot with that particular gun and setup, and they just weren't available or they weren't available, you know, fast enough in time. And so I was like, well, I'll run these and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and, and when you, when you start out maybe <laughs> shooting, you know, fairly close or you do a lot of your shooting up, up closer, 10 yards, 15 yards and in, you're like, yeah, things look good enough. And then you get back to that 25 and you're like, why is that? <laughs> we had, yeah, we, we see that a lot. You know, we talked a little bit about that too. The difference between point of aim, point of impact between, um, defense rounds and your training rounds, yep. uh, how important it is to get out there and do a good evaluation of your, not just because you want to check the functionality of those rounds. I mean, that's what people sometimes associate with taking their self-defense rounds to the range and shooting them is that I need to make sure that these function in my gun. And I agree. Yes. But I mean, let's face it. If you're using a modern service weapon and you're shooting any of the popular defense rounds out there, that's probably not an issue. But the bigger issue is the point of aim, point of impact. And so I think that's something that even in uh, training ammunition, just regular ball rounds, you can kind of see. I, I know this past weekend we did a, we were doing a pistol two class and I did a demo for some students and rather than go all the way back and grab another magazine, I borrowed a magazine from a student and I did the demo real quick and they had a different brand of ammo and what I noticed immediately was the flash. Oh my God. I was, cause I'm in an indoor range. So that flash is just so brilliant. And then a, like, again, the, the drill was a, a step back drill. So by the time I get back to a certain yard line, I can see that the point of impact is climbing and getting to a, a point where it's a little bit higher than what I normally used to seeing when I'm doing that drill. So that's another valuable piece of takeaway that most people don't really put enough yeah. time into is their point of aim, point of impact for their defense rounds. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, like I said, my usual stuff, I, 
I'm pretty familiar with where it hits, which actually conveniently is my, my practice rounds are pretty close to my defense rounds you know, within an inch or two. That's good. That's you really know? good. But uh, yeah, those ones were surprising me just how, they were. how much they higher seemed they like were. They were a real high. Uh, <laughs> they, they really definitely seemed like they were out of the norm. Needed to be aiming for his belly button. <laughs> for sure. Anyway, so uh, we'll come back to some of the, the core stuff there. But again, on the first day, you, you told us, and I didn't know this about you necessarily, you shared with us kind of your beginning experiences with concealed carry and mm-hmm. how you really thrust into it. You were just kind For of sure. like told, like, you're going to go do this. Yeah. And, and I'll let you kind of explain how that went down, or at least what is appropriate uh, on sure. air to put out there. And, and so what I liked about that, hearing that perspective from you, was that a couple things. Number one, it told me that you've actually been practicing the art of concealed carry for a long time. Yes. And, and you also had to do it in some ways that uh, were really, I mean, you really had to learn how to do it properly and correctly because if you failed, it could have been costly for you. Very true. Um, so the, the, the story goes that as I, as a new guy, I was thrust into a, a, a mission profile that required me to work, Within my own um, missions, I had a subset that required me to be very low vis, very kind of like under the radar in uh, the various countries that I traveled to. And part of that also meant carrying concealed. And so I had to go down to these. Um, and at the time, they were they were still they were hot spots on the radar for you know the Middle East has always been a hot spot, but these were other hot spots that we knew had a, a higher than normal risk level. Just going in there, we know that because it's um, you know there's there's history. There's it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize things are bad. Uh, so I had no training whatsoever. Now I was excited because it had this kind of this lure of being super cool, kind of like James Bond <laughs> motif assigned to it in a sense. So that was cool. And then um, there was also additional equipment that I was supposed to get or have or or work with. Come to find out that that additional kit was non-existent. And um, the the OJT that I went through was like baptism by fire. So I literally am downrange. I'm having to uh, co-mingle with the HVTs. I'm having to work in such tight proximity with them. And the entire time I'm carrying my, my sidearm, which is at the time a SIG 226, which is not a very easy gun to conceal. It's a big gun. And on a small frame like me, it was tough. So I tell everybody that the very first time that I carried concealed, I knew nothing about what I was doing. I had no holster because the holster that I was given, the concealment holster that I was given was for a Beretta. <laughs> and I was carrying a SIG. So I didn't even have a holster. So I stuck my 226 in my pants without a holster right there in front in the appendix position. What, what everybody knows is appendix position. Back then it didn't have a name. It was just, you know, you're just running it inside your pants. And um, the, the amount of learning that took place in that short period, I think the first rotation that I did was about uh, probably 21 days, I think it was. And, you know, and in that time period, there's a lot that I had to do. There's a lot of responsibilities that I had uh, to do outside of my normal responsibilities for, for supporting this Slovis operation. And when I came back, I was like, wow, um, we need to be doing this a lot better. And, you know, I tell, I tell people 
I'm not joking when I say that back then there were three holster manufacturers that were making holsters for concealed carry. And at the time it wasn't even called concealed carry. It was plain clothes. Uh, because the only people that were really doing anything concealed were plainclothes detectives. They were the guys that would go out and investigate crimes. And as such, they would be in plain clothes, street clothes. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were three holster manufacturers at the time. Uh, there's, there wasn't nearly as many um, options for carry guns. It, for us, there was no option. It was just the gun that we had, which was our duty issue uh, 226. So there weren't a lot of guns that were ideally suited for concealed carry, unless you're talking like some real small guns that people would just throw in pockets without really knowing what they're doing. Right. All of that created um, a, a, a need, first of all, but a desire for me to want to do it better and try to learn and work, um, work with what we had available and work to try to improve that skill set. And so like when I put that in a time period so people can have an understanding of what that was, that first trip was probably 1989, 1990-ish time period. So, you know, for mm-hmm. almost, what is that, 30 years? Almost 30 years I've been carrying concealed. And uh, it, the, the art form, I like how you use that. The art form has evolved quite, <laughs> quite a bunch since that time period. I mean, just... I laugh because people complain about the the situation or the conditions that they have to work in right now with regards to carrying concealed. And I'm like, please, (laughs) please just stop. Right. You just please. So yeah, that was a very um, interesting time period for me. And honestly, I, I I knew, I, I knew we needed to do it better, but I didn't really have an appreciation because it was such a subset mission. It wasn't like a primary mission. So I didn't put that much time into it. Um, as far as like, okay, what do we want to be doing at a, at a larger unit level? I was just like more interested in doing it for me. Like, what do I need to do to do it better? Because I don't want to, um, you know, I want to be able to do this well, because like you said, if we, we had some serious international complications that could arise, should things go bad? So there was always that, man, you're always, you always have that looming over that if you do something wrong when you're in this kind of condition, there's some major, major fallout. Yeah. Right. You know, so I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, so you touched on the, how people talk about nowadays, like, well, there's all these challenges of concealed carry. And it's not that those challenges don't exist, but when you look at concealed carry in 2019 compared to concealed carry in 1989, <laughs> if like, I think your point was, if you think concealed carry now is difficult, go back to 1989. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I mean, there right now we are in such an amazing time period for concealed carry. I mean, you have a ridiculous number of holster manufacturers that are out there. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't think people can really appreciate that, but back then you didn't really have a lot of options for holsters. Um, now, the other thing that we're looking at is the the manufacturers have paid attention to the trends as far as concealed carry is concerned, and they are producing products that are optimally suited for concealed carry. So you, you're seeing a whole new direction in many of these gun manufacturers on their subcompact mm-hmm. and smaller guns. And that's huge because that's making that what that's doing excuse me, that's lowering the barriers to entry for so many people that don't want to, um, 
go to the extreme of carrying something like a compact or even a full-size gun. And honestly, the average person that goes in to a gun store to look for a gun to carry concealed, the first thing they're going to be looking for is a gun that is small. Yeah. So now in today's market, you have more options in the subcompact level than than ever before. So yeah. there's, there's and, and they're reliable too. Well, that's speaking, the other thing compared to 1989. <laughs> well, even even when we started doing this in the public sector, so we we were doing this in the private sector at the unit level for many years, and then we finally took the program public about in um, 2014, I think it was. And when we did, most people that came to those classes were shooting some subcompact guns that were horrible. They were terrible. So even the trend of trying to improve upon the performance levels of these subcompact guns is very new. I mean, I would say just within the last two or three years. Yeah, I would say probably since since Glock introduced the 40, 42, which came out before the 43, Correct. the... Um, the trend to see in reliable subcompact guns really started then because, you know, Glock put their Uber reliability behind that 42. And I've actually had, I think three Glock 42s come through our concealed carry classes before. So I, I mean, for a 380 gun, most of the time, any other 380 platform is not going to be able to handle the round count that you see, uh, not to mention the, the ability for the shooter to use that gun. Well, the complications with the trigger and the sight systems, so seeing the seeing the change in the manufacturer's direction really, I believe, started with the Glock 42 hitting the market. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It definitely brought that that uh, self-imposed requirement of small gun, three even 380 caliber, but it's got to be reliable. It kind of brought that to the forefront. Sure we, we, we've been seeing a lot of these. You know, the trend the last decade or so was, uh, you know, especially. In, since the early 2000s, you know, things got kind of smaller, 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 smaller mm-hmm. for the concealed carry market as that yeah. became more and more of a thing. Yeah. And now, you know, so we got to a point where single stack six, seven rounds sort of became the norm. And now it's almost like we're seeing that start to go it's you know, the other up. way where, I mean, we have innovative you know, guns like the P365 from Six Hour. I know that you, you're also a fan of it. You've been shooting it at least. You, oh, yeah. you got it, you know, in the class that we were in there. And uh, that's kind of setting a whole new standard, that small single stack size, you know, even small enough, at least for some people, to be able to get away with pocket carry, but holding 10 plus one rounds. Like that's just, yeah, that was unheard of 10, 20 oh, years God. ago, especially. Oh, yeah. And the reliability component plus the accuracy component. So like mm. these days, like all uh, and, and, and as you know, when we're looking at a primary carry gun, there are certain criterion that we want met. And the very first criterion is it has to have a 10 round magazine capacity. And the principal reasons behind that are number one, you're probably not going to be the best shot you think you're going to be. You're going to end up probably missing, getting peripheral hits. Uh, The bad guy's probably going to be marginally impressed with your responses. uh, Or more likely, you may be facing multiple threats. So the 10-round capacity is designed to accommodate the various scenarios where things aren't going to go your way. And so with having a 10-round capacity for the primary, that, that tends to kind of cover your bases. So it really kept subcompact guns out of the mix. The only gun that actually even made it into the um, the pool, if you will, was the Glock 26, 
which I think uh, is funny. I hear a lot of people reference that as the Danny DeVito of, of handguns. You know, it's short and stubby and whatnot. And I, I love that gun, but it's a, it's a, there's a point of diminishing returns. You know, it's still the same size width wise as a Glock 19, but I lose out in um, grip surface and I lose out in sight length. So mm, it's like, mm, I'm better off. I'm, I, I feel better covering that 19 than I do the 26. So the 26 has always been to me kind of like um, a gun that I use in, in different roles. Like it's usually like a, a gun that I carry in a butt pack or uh, a gun that I might use as as a backup or secondary kind of thing. It's it's not really been a primary, even though it met the requirements for being a primary with a ten round magazine capacity. So, um, right, it's, right. It, it's great to see the innovation from the gun manufacturers. And yeah, right now I think and now I mean there's three. Now you have three variants on the three six five. You got the original, you got the XL, and you got the new SAS, which came out like right right at the end of the the class there. Um, I've only, I haven't really gotten a chance to play with it yet. Um, but it may, it may, it may appeal to some, some people within the uh, concealed carry market. But, um, the good news is that that gun has forced every other gun manufacturer to step their game up Mm -hmm. because as soon as that three, six, five came out, we saw the Glock 48 come out and that's a, that's a nice platform. I, I have, again, you know, there's, there's, um, for me, you're extending the grip length. So I'm like, am I really getting that much from it? Okay, sure. It's thinner, but I'm extending the grip length. And if I'm trying to select a gun, that's going to do a good job from a concealment point of view, it's going to be small. And so while that gun is thin, it's not really small. And there's a difference between those two characteristics and people forget that a lot of times. So I don't have anything derogatory about that Glock 48. I think it's a, it's a good platform and it offers some options for a lot of people. But when I'm looking at a side-by-side comparison between that and the 365, I'm going to go with the 365 just because it's a smaller gun. Yeah. I I actually, uh, since the concealed carry instructor development course, I've since, uh, had a P365XL come in. And oh, nice. I've been, I've been playing around with that. And I just spent the weekend in our own course that we were teaching, you know, the, the few times that I shot and did some demos here and there, uh, <clears throat> shot the XL just to kind of put it through its some of its paces. And so now you've, you've taken, I think, an already pretty awesome platform and made it a little bit bigger, which just increases its shootability substantially. And I'll tell you, on a guy like me, it's still, dang, you're just about as concealable. I mean, just the additional yeah. length in the grip, it's about a half inch, which is yeah. not, not a ton. It, it, Some people, they'll notice for sure. But I mean, oh, I'm well, like, yeah. this thing disappears still, and it's you know even a little bit more capable than the 365. So, uh, so far, just, just to give the folks an updated report, I've got about 600 or so rounds through it. And it started to show some problems around 500 rounds or so. But I'll tell you this much. I pulled it out of the box uh, a week and a half ago and just started shooting it. No lube or anything like that. I'm like, let's just see what it does. And now I've got it lubed up, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's running fine now. So hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards it. I mean, and I'll tell you, I took my slide off of it a couple of times doing some demos with just the grip in my hand. 
so students could see, you know, from kind of a front angle and stuff like that. The, the slide ended up in the dirt a time or two. So <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> so, so when I say it started having problems, it, it, I mean, it was like dry and, and not just like dirty for being shot, but like had some grit in it. So I that's got that, hilarious. got that squared away. So we'll, we'll, we'll give you an updated uh, report folks uh, yeah. as I, you know, run another, another say 500 rounds or so through it. And oh, I'm, I'm anticipating that those rounds will be trouble free, but we'll see. I, what I was having yeah. some issues with was on a single hand shooting, uh, getting fully back into battery. And I think it was just, just dry enough and just gritty enough that it, Interesting. you know, was like, eh, not so. really wanting to cooperate. Well, yeah. for folks, just so folks understand the difference between the XL and three, six, five, aside from the sight length is that they extended the actual, the, the grip itself. So the standard magazine is a 12-round magazine now. So whereas yeah. with the original 365, it was a 10-round magazine. I mean, you can put a 12 and a 15-round in there, but now it's a 12-round. Yeah. Yep, yeah. That's, that's the standard I'm holding up for those that are viewing on camera. This is the new standard 12-round mag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I'm happy about because I like, the, I like having that 12-round mag without the, um, the little finger groove around it. This is what I have in the gun, though, today. Yeah. Look it's at the that. 15 rounder. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, everybody's going to have different needs. And that's one of the things that I mentioned. I think I just made a post about that like three or four days ago. Mm. Everybody's going to have different concealed carrying needs and requirements. You're also going to have different conditions and restrictions. And so you've got to really be able to do this crazy like um, puzzle fitting of those needs versus the conditions until you find the right the right fit for you and like i i try to discourage people from thinking about a gun being uh too much or too little right now like i feel like if it's meeting that that requirement as a primary carry gun of 10 rounds and it's in a nine millimeter i think you're going to be fine and, and what you'll learn along the way is maybe this works well, but maybe another one will work better. And so you kind of have to start someplace to develop a baseline. And then from there, you can start to really customize to figure out exactly what you want and how it's going to work. So I'm, I'm excited. I really think that uh, some of the other manufacturers are going to start producing more guns that are ideally suited for yeah. concealed carry. Absolutely. The pressure is on. Mm. So staying, you know, kind of uh, true to topic here. Uh, what, what are some other lessons you had to learn along the way? So you, you, you talked about, I would say the lack of ability, at least at that time that you were learning some of these things for more concealable guns, but holsters was a big one. So what have you seen in the evolution of concealed carry as far as from holster holsters and holster manufacturers that you see as like, you know, like what's going really well these days and maybe what are some things that are still a challenge for people? That is a great question because I would say that we've seen probably uh, some of the biggest steps in innovation in holsters. Like if you were to look back at the holsters back in 1989 and look at them today, um, if you're looking at leather holsters, there's not a lot of difference, honestly, because there's only three main designs for holsters um, on the leather side of the house. You, you might see variants or hybrids of those three designs, but there really are only three designs. And um, 
when Kydex became popular, and I think Kydex became popular probably around 03-ish, I think that's about it. I, I had a good friend that was a holster maker, and he started off doing it uh, as a knife sheath maker. And yeah. he started making knife sheaths for, for various guns, and he had a couple of contracts with some foreign um, militaries with their uh, their combat knife. And he got a request to do holsters. And so he was kind of like against it at first because he was happy just making knife sheaths. But he's like, oh, why not? So I think that was about the time that we started to see Kydex become popular. And truthfully, even before Kydex, there was plastic, there was plastic holsters that were being made. And I think the company that was doing it at that time that was doing it right was Blade Tech. Mm. And Blade Tech's original holsters were awesome i still have like unfortunately that time period that era for me i was shooting 1911s so all of my <laughs> original blade tech holsters are all for 1911 guns and i have some i mean i have some i love them i still have them in like bags in my uh, my gear locker it's just like i'm never even though i don't shoot 1911s that much anymore i'm, I'm not going to get rid of those holsters because that's a that's a relic in a sense between, you know, from a time period when those guys were doing it really good. But the problem was Kydex, like holsters that were made at that time period were made by hand, whether it was leather or whether it was Kydex. And so to be able to keep up with the demand, holster manufacturers had to, had to come up with a better way to construct these holsters. And that's where we saw, mass production, like assembly line mass production start to really come in. Cause at the time it was all done by hand one at a time. And I watched my friend Frank kind of start the, that trend of, you know, like step one was to get all of these done. Step two was to bend them. Step three was to, you know, sand them down. Step four, and you did all of them at one time. And then you just, they like, go from one bend to the next one stage kind of thing, one stage in the assembly process. Um, so what we really saw was probably about that time we saw Kydex really start to take off. And I think the principal reason why it did so well was because even though they were still being made by hand, there was still a faster turnaround between Kydex and leather. I mean, leather holsters take a while. Like I just put in an, an order for a leather holster. Um, I don't remember how long ago. I think it was probably about the time we did the instructor course. And, you know, it's like seven to nine week delivery. Uh, quoted delivery. And I'm fine with that because I know that going in, right? I'm okay. But, you know, now Kydex, geez, you know, it doesn't take any time to get Kydex done. And um, what we really started to see was also customization of those holsters. Like you started to see some different attachment systems. Um, up, up until that point, leather holsters, um, you know, you, you were limited to slots, right? Slots were it as far as uh, attachment systems meeting belt slots. And then Kydex came around and Kydex came around and introduced us to all sorts of new things. One in particular was the uh, soft loop, the leather soft loop. So they took a little bit of leather straps and they turned them into soft loops. And now our soft loops are all uh, biothane, which is a really nice, um, not really plastic, not really leather, pliable material that's very rugged. So I think yeah. we started to see the customization of those holsters at that point. When... When concealed carry really took off, we saw a shift in the mode of carry. So the mode of carry at that time period was on the waistband. And now once Kydex really started to do a good job of developing holsters 
ideally suited for inside the waistband, we started to see a lot of shift in, in manufacturing. So uh, like there weren't that many, like at the time, the only real inside the waistband holsters that you were getting were from leather, the leather side of the house. So some of the early Kydex companies that were doing it, and I think one of the first companies that did um, did it really well, they were smaller companies, you know, these small uh, subset companies, but they were making good inside the waistband holsters. And as soon as that hit, I think the market just exploded about that point, you know, the inside the waistband. And I'll be honest, at that time period, I wasn't convinced that in the waistband for me with a Kydex holster was ideal. Like I, I was such a diehard leather wearer that, um, you know, I wore leather on the outside. I wore leather on the inside. So when the first Kydex holsters came around, the first thing that I was noticing was, oh my God, this is so stiff. This is such a rigid holster inside my pants. You know, leather has a little bit of play. Um, and within a short time period, you started to see the advantages between Kydex and leather inside the waistband. And the biggest advantage is that when you're inside the waistband, your body composition puts extra tension on that holster. So even if the holster has good retention, when you apply your body composition and it presses against the holster, which presses against your pants, you're actually adding more tension to the retention of the holster. And so there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns with the, with the, with the clearing of the holster, clearing of the gun from the holster and leather just had a natural tendency to be a little stiffer. Like it just stuck a little bit harder. And then you added perspiration. So once that leather holster got a little damp, it kind of stuck a little drag, a little extra drag there. Whereas Kydex, you never had that. Kydex was just Kydex. The other thing that I thought was really a big fundamental change was leather was prone to like having the mouth close on the holster when it was inside the waistband. And that's where the retaining band became very popular because you didn't want to use your weak hand to open up the holster so that you can shove it in. Kydex, right. Kydex eliminated that from ever happening. So, you know, Kydex slowly started to take root as a household name for, for, for concealed carry. I, I really think at, at that point, and I made a fundamental shift in my mindset when I started to wear Kydex a little bit more often inside the waistband. And I, I, I can appreciate the wearing of a Kydex plastic holster inside the waistband. It's, it, it can be a little uncomfortable for people that are starting out in this tradecraft. Uh, and I think I even mentioned it in the class that I went back to a certain position Kydex holster and like the first couple of days I wore it, I was like, ow, oh my God, what is that? You know, it took me, uh, it took me a little bit of time to get reacquainted with that position to, to be comfortable. So, you know. Yeah. You know, I was actually really uh, pleased when I heard you talk about that particular point because I've talked about this a little here and there and, and, and thought I was one of the few people that ever said anything like this. The idea that, I think our bodies almost have to get broken in a little bit to, uh, to, to holsters and the idea of sticking something hard and, you know, inflexible in inside your waistband. Yeah, there's that. Um, I try to like, you try to, you want to water it down because you also don't want that to be, Oh, you, you don't want somebody to be turned off from the, from the idea of carrying concealed because it's not comfortable. So I, I, I do give people forewarning but I tell them that it's different. It's different because you are not used to rock, walking around with something in your pants like that. You're really not. 
and it's it's not it's there's no pliability it doesn't doesn't move quite like your rest of the rest of your body moves so it's stiff i i always try to encourage people to be patient and work to become accustomed to this new uh, because anything that we introduce that's new, a novelty, is always going to take time to adjust to because it's not the norm. It's not the norm. So once you have become accustomed to this new norm, it becomes the norm. So it, like I said, it took me about two or three days of wearing it. And then after that, I forgot. I was like, oh, back to my norm. So that's kind of how it, I'm trying to think what other innovations. So when we got to probably about five to seven years ago, we really started seeing a lot of really cool things in the innovation department with regards to holsters. Uh, for me, one, one in particular that I was very um, happy about was additional mounting hardware options. So when we were working at the unit level and I would have to go and work with, you know, an entire department or unit, it was sometimes they were all issued the same gun. So it was sometimes easy to just send them a link and say, hey, buy this holster because it gives you the option to carry it either on the waistband or in the waistband. So one holster is going to solve all those problems, right? So I was really excited about that. Um, that was a big, that to me meant a lot from a, from a training perspective. It was a simple uh, you know, now it's one SKU. You know, the procurement officer buys one SKU for his entire unit, and then you leave it up to the individual officers. Like, do I want to carry on the waistband? Maybe I'm not comfortable carrying in the waistband, but I have one holster that'll do both. And it did a pretty good job. I'm not going to say that it was like perfect, but for the time period, it was pretty damn awesome. And I still have several of those holsters that I keep around um, just, you know, from a nostalgia point of view, but also to support a student should the need arise. So, I mean, that was a big change. Um, I think I think we uh, had a lot of changes when we started to see appendix carry come, become popular. We saw a lot of novelties in that department. And I, I had the fortune of working with one of the holster manufacturers, uh, Tony Mayer from JM Custom, a great guy. And we worked on some holster projects together. And I remember I called him up one day and I was just talking to him like, you know, hey, here's, here's my um, laundry list of, absolute requirements for a holster to be uh, an appendix carry holster. And I went through these laundry lists and he was like, absolutely. Every one of those things is critical is important. So we started to see holster manufacturers build holsters that were a little bit more in tune with that mode of carry uh, everything from belt claws to counter wedges. You know, those were kind of the unique things. And, mm -hmm. and I think now what we're seeing as far as a trend in the holster company business is the injection molding yep. and that I believe will be, so you're going to basically what that's doing is that's thinning the herd. Um, injection molding is now allowing holster manufacturers to keep up with demand because the injection molding is so much faster. Yeah. You know, you, it's a huge upfront cost, the molds to make which, all of that work, which means the, the little guys Exactly. Are, they, they, they can't get into that. It's, really. it's cost prohibitive. Exactly. Yeah. So um, there'll still be a lot of these boutique niche holster manufacturers, but the big boys are going to be going to injection molding because it's just going to allow them to keep up. And I'll, I'll be honest, the injection molding holsters that we're seeing are awesome. They're great. You know, like there was a time when I was like, 
you know, injection molding. And the reason why is because injection molding was associated with um, bad, like lower end holster manufacturers. The guys that were doing injection molding at that point were, I don't want to say low budget, but they were, there was a low price point assigned to them, which, you know, buy cheap, buy twice. There's a, there's a phrase that I like to use a lot of times. So that really was apropos in that setting. So now that we're seeing injection molding become as popular or not become as popular, but hitting the market, I think you're going to see more of those. And from a consumer point of view, because, you know, for, for, uh, for a gun store or any sporting store to supply, to, to, to outfit their customer base, they need something that they can get very quickly. Uh, there's a logistical chain that allows them to get in a timely manner um, to support the demand that their cus- consumers are placing on them. So that's where the injection yeah. mold is going to come in. And and we're seeing we're seeing more and more injection molded holsters these days. There's only a couple companies that are doing it. I, I'm sure there's probably more on the on the on the on the horizon. We'll probably see maybe one or two more companies take up the the torch there. But right now, there's only a couple that are doing it doing it well. I should say. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, there's actually a question from a viewer here on Facebook uh, wondering uh, who might some of those companies be that are doing injection molded holsters these days that, that you think are are doing a good job. Um, right now, the two are going to be Raven Concealment and Bravo Concealment. Uh, both of those holster manufacturers have injection molded holsters that are now both available for on the waistband and in the waistband. And um, like I run on the waistband mostly with Raven and I run in the waistband mostly with Bravo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Blatex still doing, they're doing some injection molded too though. They, they are a- absolutely. And I, that's another company that I should have added there. Blatex had, mm-hmm. in fact, Blatex kind of um, hit the market before Raven and Bravo did with their right. injection molded. They, they kind of were the ones. And again, it's a big name company, been around for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew Tim Wagner when he first started off and he was actually the guy that was making the holsters himself. So um, it, it is, it's tough uh, to, to compete at that level because of the, the, the cost. It's just not an easy yeah. thing. Um, and I'll, uh, you know, here would be another thing. And there's a comment in the Facebook uh, comments here too, that kind of uh, recognizes this fact that with injection molding, it's a lot more difficult to accommodate those mm, lesser common combinations of guns or guns and accessories. Yeah. And, and, and even the big companies are going to end up having to make some of those difficult decisions about there's just not a big enough market out there to make that's, something I mean, that fits a... So that's the thing. It's like... The one-offs, the, the, you got to put yourself in the perspective from the, from the manufacturer point of view. I mean, granted, everybody's like, well, I want, I want my holster to have this, that, and the other. I want it to be all of this. But the harsh reality is that's not popular. It's just not. It might be popular in a very small subset of people, but you've got to look at the market from a big picture point of view. All right. Not just the very, very small tactical market that within the tactical market, there's an 80, 20 percent rule. 80 percent of the people really don't know what they need or don't know what they're talking about. And only 20 percent do. So you look at that 20 percent of the tactical market, which is such a small subset of the actual gun market. And the holster manufacturers are like, I mean, they're not idiots. They're not going to they're not going to expend their resources, precious resources on things that are just not that popular. Right. So, you know, I mean. The, the biggest complaint that I see from some people is that there's not a lot of light options out there. And truthfully, carrying a light on a concealed carry gun is not that popular. And I'm not saying for people not to do it, but 
I mean, the juice isn't really worth the squeeze. Everybody's going to be like, well, I want to be able to see what I'm shooting at. I get it. I mean, that's an important thing. A lot of bad things happen in hours of low light and no light conditions. Um, but a handheld light is a far better option than a weapon mounted light. So holster manufacturers recognize that. They're like, yep, yeah, um, I mean, it's just not, it's not worth it for us to tool up the machinery for the likelihood of a very low return on their investment. It's just not. That's, yep. that's, that's, that's the problem that a lot of people and a lot of people in the industry get all butthurt. Well, there's all this going on and it's a popular trend. I'm like, no, it's really not right. If you sat in my shoes, if you're on my perch looking down at the industry, then you would see, yeah, it's really not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, uh, let's come back, you know, I got to check the time real quick here. Oh, let's yeah, yeah. come back to the Concealed Carry Instructor Development Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gotta really, I, I gotta really watch myself. It's, it's just this, this constructor hilarious. thing is so funny. This is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so uh, now, a lot of what we've talked about actually is some of the same things or along the same lines of topics that we discussed in that instructor course, uh, which was kind of what I thought would happen here. And and <clears throat> there were some other topics covered in the course too. Maybe you could give us a kind of a little bit of an overview of some other things. Again, the focus here being training instructors to be able to teach a good, sound, concealed carry curriculum. Right. What are some other critical components for concealed carriers to understand as it relates to choosing choosing good gear that's going to really help them succeed the best they can at, at concealed carry? Uh, from a student's point of view or from the instructor point of view? From a student's point of view. Well, I mean, the problem that a lot – so this is why, I mean, the um, the average student – Concealed carry student is, you got to put this in context, is Mm. somebody who's probably just received or is about to receive their license to carry from whatever state they reside in. Um, And the pretty much every state mandated, state regulated course is um, not designed necessarily to inform the consumer on all things concealed carry. Many of these courses are just a, a more of a liability safety net to make sure that the state can absolve themselves of some liability. Should somebody do something, you know, and it comes back, they can say, well, they met a minimum criterion to be carrying a handgun. Right. Um, so, you know, the problem that we have is that a lot of, a lot of students really don't know what they don't know. And that's, that's a common, uh, that's a common thing that we see because I mean, I cannot tell you how many times we have students show up to class and they realize that the gear that they bought is just not ideally suited for, for, for the mission at hand. So the best thing that I can do is to tell people to, first of all, identify the mission. Like, really, like, what is the mission? And what I mean by that is like, okay, so when we say concealed carry, it's like, mm, all right, well, okay, I might carry, you know, and I think I talked to you a little bit about the surveys that we do and the overwhelming, so we we've, we send out surveys fairly regularly and the most recent one that we did, we did one uh, related to uh, concealed carry. And I asked a question that was centered around the, um, the frequency that you carry. Right. And I put it in these terms. Do you carry every day? Do you carry three days a week? Do you carry one day a week? Do you not carry at all? Okay. And 
typical of the everyday, you know, and you know what, how we define everyday. Um, we, we saw a high number of people that, that claimed to carry every day. All right. That number was, you know, um, I think it was like right around 40% of the respondents were in that first category. Right. And then carry three times a week or carry one time a week almost had exactly the same number of respondents. It hovered around 23 to 25%. Right. And then the rest were, you know, don't carry. So you're looking at like, let's just say 40% that say they carry every day, but 50% of the people are only carrying three to one, you know, one to three days a week. Right. So that's got to soak in. You got to let that soak in one to three days a week. It's really hard to appreciate gear selection when you're only carrying one to three days a week. If you're at that level where you're truly carrying every day, gear is so critical. So once you can sit down and define the mission for your needs, so maybe you can't carry, like I just had a conversation with a student who works in a non-permissive environment. And even though he's entitled by law to carry his firearm in his vehicle and park his vehicle on the property, um, the employer will terminate people when they find that out. So even though it's against the law to do that, and that person can have a wrongful uh, termination suit, the company is like, bring it. We don't care. Yeah. You know, it's like, and certainly know. they'll do everything they can to try to find some valid reason to try to terminate them yeah. with, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they will. They'll try to hedge their yeah. bets, if you will. So Absolutely. former or in discrepancies, shit like that. But the point is that I get his concern. It's like, you know what? You know, it's like I'm, I'm it's tough for me. So I, I get that. And I think that's why it's valid to see people carrying it three one to three days a week, because a lot of times they work in a non-permissive environment where they can't carry every day, right? But that doesn't mean that we don't identify our mission needs. Like what are our mission needs? When we talked a little bit about, you know, the carry gun that you're looking at, a primary carry gun should consist of a magazine capacity of 10 rounds or more, should be nine millimeter. Um, it should be reliable and accurate. And, you know, the, the last part to this is that it should have a very supportive logistical chain. And one of my complaints about the 365 is that it just doesn't have as many carry options as, say, some of the other popular brands. And that's frustrating. I feel like that will change because the 365 is becoming more and more popular. And as the manufacturers see the consumer trend increasing, they'll probably meet consumer demand with more holster options. So once you've defined that mission, you know, you need to take into consideration your, your actual frequency of carry. Because if it's one to three days, maybe it's not quite as important what you're actually carrying. And that's where I think a lot of people will get confused. They'll, they'll pick something and say, oh, this thing is the cat's meow. This is awesome. And I'll be like, well, how often have you worn that? Or how, how long have you been using that? Oh, well, you know, I carry it, you know, on the weekends when I can because I can't carry it at work. Or I carry it after work because I have to commute to and from work with, uh, you know, I can only carry while I commute. And I'm like, mm, that may not be the best evaluator of sorts, you know, when you can only carry it that much. So, you know, maybe it focuses, maybe it supports that mission criterion, which is just one to three days a week. It's okay. But again, when you start to carry it, that everyday can, um, capacity, it's a, it's a totally different perspective on your equipment. So one doesn't necessarily fulfill the other. So in other words, if I'm looking at a carry gun, that's, I'm going to be wearing for one to three days out of the week, 
I can get away with some things, you know, comfort level, um, size of the gun, size of the holster, or, you know, holster's location. It's not that important. But when I'm carrying every day, that's when I have to put a lot more thought into what I'm carrying and how I'm carrying it. So um, after that, what I tell people is you're probably going to need to be comfortable purchasing at a minimum three different holsters. Like when you are putting into service a new gun, what I tell people is find three different holster manufacturers that produce a holster for that gun. Before you buy the gun, try to find holster manufacturers, three of them that produce a, a, a holster for it, for that gun. And then buy those holsters when you buy the gun, because what's going to happen is you will probably find one holster that does a good job and the other two don't really do that good a job, but you really wouldn't know that in the, in the short, in the storefront, you really wouldn't know that off the website. Like you can like, uh, for you, for, for, uh, for example, like what works for you may not really work for me. We have different body styles, different, different body composition. So maybe the holster that rocks it for you really doesn't do a good job for me. And so that's why right. you got to be careful about input and influence from other people because it's not always going to be valid for you. I mean, I'm not saying to ignore it. I'm not saying that you don't um, take in, you know, the experience level of the individual that you're talking to, but you just got to kind of take it with the grain of salt and make sure that it fits into your, your needs. And then there's the trial and error period, which is you go through this and what you thought was the ideal combination of gun and holster Turns out maybe not to be. And that brings us to buyer's remorse, which is <laughs> a big thing, right? People need to be, I get it. You know, if you're a low income family or single parent and you have limited discretionary funds, it sucks. You know, you invest in this and then you realize, oh, this is a terrible platform. And we see that a lot, man. We do. We see the gun choice, the holster choices that just, and then what happens is they made a bad choice. And rather than make a new choice, they just opt to disengage. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna carry this. This was like a an, an, an effort in futility. It's not gonna work yeah. for me. I'm, I'm I'm out. You know, and and we don't want to see that because, you know, every every person that is arming themselves represents a, a an extra level of societal safety that we really want to be striving for the more people that are armed i think the the safer our society will be so you know that's a hard one that's tough to try to get people um to 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 just try to recognize that it's not the end of the world if you bought something that you thought was going to be awesome and it turns out that it's a total dud uh, just just recognize that you're not going to always hit it out of the park on the first go as you do this more and more right like nowadays you could probably walk into the store you can see something you're like that's about, that's about a 90% chance that's going to work, mm. for you, you know? Yeah. But to get to that, that point took all that, all those years of experience of failing, of per repurchasing new things, of finding new holsters, getting rid of guns and getting, so to get <laughs> to that level, yeah. you know, you gotta, I don't want to say you got to earn it, but in a sense, you've got to pay your dues and then it becomes so much easier. People will toss me things like, Hey, what do you think of this thing? Uh, you know, it doesn't even like hit my hands and I'm like, no, this isn't going to work, man. Good luck with that. But no. So, it's so true. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of holsters. In fact, we get a lot of companies that contact us here. Obviously we're concealedcarry.com. They're like, we'd love for you to review this thing. And I've turned down a lot because number one, it's just not even worth my time. 
And number two, I just am right. not that crazy about taking somebody's product and then just trashing it. You know, I'll just, be, I'll just tell them straight up. Like I could tell like, well, why are you so quick to, to, you know, deny this request? And I'll be like, I could just tell, no offense, just looking at it because it looks like this other thing or it looks like <laughs> that other thing that I've tried and it didn't work. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> it's like, that's the other thing. That's the, that's another, like I was saying earlier, there's not a lot of ways to make a holster. Yeah. You know, it's not like somebody's come out with this revolutionary design that's like, boom, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I'm going to can all the other things that I've ever purchased in my life because this is it. It just doesn't happen. It's not yeah. ever going to happen until, you know, I don't even know when, but, you know, yeah. and I've, I've had the same conversations with people and I try to, you know, I, I put it in terms that, um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not, it's not like I'm not interested in providing you feedback. Um, but it's also not my job to help you develop your product. Yeah. You know, that's not my job. My job is to, is, is to, is to help educate the public on what they should be looking at for purchasing or, you know, purchasing needs. It's not my job to help manufacturers build a better product. I mean, I'm yeah. happy to do that, but that's a completely different scenario we're not talking i mean we're in the rdt and e phase and that's a whole other can of worms that again i just don't have the time to get involved in i mean i used to do that on a pretty regular basis and i was extremely excited to do that um working with these manufacturers to produce some really killer products but you know i just don't have the time to invest in in all of the work that goes into doing that well yep not right now at least um, I keep saying we're going to come back and, and talk, you know, kind of after action report of the uh, concealed carry instructor development course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're we're kind of out of time. But oh, I no. do want to I do want to throw out a couple of a uh, couple of things. I know time flies by, dude. Wow, Jesus, it is. Oh, uh, yeah. my God. Holy cow. <laughs> we, we, we've been in this uh, at least an hour now. Uh, so, which is not a bad thing. No, God, you're right. It just flew by. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh. Sorry, but, folks. Uh, I, I wanted I wanted to throw out. A, well, uh, dude, this this has been really great uh, discussion. I think and conversation about these things, and 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 it, it it really is difficult for the average concealed carrier to kind of parse through everything that's out there. It is, and, and figure out what works and what doesn't work. And and unfortunately, a lot of it does mean you you kind of uh, earn your stripes, so to speak. I mean, I've got a a pretty big box that has been trimmed down. Like I've thrown some <laughs> stuff out or I've given stuff away, you know, uh, that I didn't feel like morally opposed to giving away, you know, like for various, uh, safe uh I, I get it. I get it. Yep. 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 <laughs> but, you know, but I still have this massive box of, of things that, and not just even holsters, but just products that, you know, don't really work. And so yeah. in the box they go, but, uh, so back to the course, um, you know, we, I wanted to talk about a couple of uh, more like on the shooting side of things, sort of like lessons learned. And I wanted to give you some mad props uh, for the way you explained uh, trigger control or trigger management, uh, talking about the different stages of a trigger and referring to those as particularly like on a striker fired gun, but even like, I think just just about any gun trigger kind of fits this category, right? As far as that, that one and two and three and I think I kind of heard that at some point, you know, described in that same manner, but maybe at that time in my life where I was, it didn't quite click the way it did for me this time. Uh, But certainly I'm familiar with the concept of prepping and staging a trigger, but just the way you explained it, I was just like, 
oh, you know, like, <laughs> you know, so there were definitely those times for the weekend where, you know, especially if you've been shooting for a while, uh, you, you know, when you throw shots, you know, you're like, oh, that one's up left, you know, oh, that one's down right or whatever, you know, like you, you just know. And of course, the classic down and left for a right hand mm-hmm. shooter. And, and so could you kind of rehash that just briefly of how yeah. you describe that? Because I think that is really a good way of thinking your way through a trigger press. So, um, I, and first of all, thank you for that. I mean, I thought you did a very, very good job. And I think the reason why you were able to do such a good job was because the way we articulated that trigger management resonated with you and you were able to apply that. You, I mean, you were able to easily take that information and apply it on a consistent basis. And I think that's one of the things that you did really well in this class was you were very consistent. You know, like th- that is something that I actually value more than a really high score on one drill and then not so good on the other drill. You right. know, just I'd like to see somebody even keeled across the board. And when you see that, people don't value what, what, that, what that means or what it takes to achieve. Right. So um, back to your question about the trigger management. So when we talk about trigger management, we break it down into three, three parts. And the first part we talk about is your trigger finger placement on the trigger. And pardon me, the, the biggest mistake that we see is people that do not place their finger correctly on the trigger. And what we mean by that is that they'll, uh, they'll place their finger more mid, like right in the middle there of the trigger. And the problem with that is a lot of times at the top of their trigger finger is going to rub against the frame. So we want them to push their finger or move their finger to the lower part of the trigger, lower third is what we call it. Now, when you look at most striker-fired pistols, I think pretty much all striker-fired pistols for that matter, uh, they're nothing more than a lever. And so if you understand how levers work, you know the lower you are on that lever, the more leverage you're going to have. And what leverage really equates to for us is power. Power to move that trigger with minimal disruption to the sights. The more power you have, the smoother that trigger movement is going to be, right? That's, that's step one. Um, the second part to trigger management has to do with what part of your trigger finger do you actually put on the trigger? And some people will say, well, it's going to be different from everybody. And that's, that's not true. It's really not. You have to put your finger on the trigger so that you can move the trigger directly to the rear. So the biggest mistake that we see is when people grip the gun first, and they're taught to grip the gun high or use a high tang grip or all this other stuff. And, and unfortunately, what that does is that puts your trigger finger at a very awkward angle, which means that you're not able to actually get your trigger finger properly placed on the trigger. So we ask the question, you know, what's the most important shot you're ever going to fire in a gunfight? And the most important shot is going to be that first shot. So if you land a, a deadly force strike on that first strike or that first shot fired, the likelihood, the percentages of you being able to actually follow it up with another deadly force hit, another deadly force hit, another deadly force hit. And what we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, shots into the, uh, the upper thoracic chest region or inside of the uh, ocular cranial cavity. So those, um, that ability is, is tricky. And, and you really want to make sure that that's, that's what you're, you're designing your technique around is that first shot you're going to fire. So when somebody talks to me about, well, I want to have a high grip because that high grip is going to help me with recoil management. I'm like, well, what's it doing for that first shot you're firing? It's screwing it up. So really, is the is it valuable at that point? Hmm. Um, so we teach people to go deep into the trigger. And, and so the kind of like the mantra that we tell everybody is low and deep with the trigger finger. So you go low on the trigger for leverage, and then you go deep on the trigger 
Uh, and the reason behind that is that we want to be able to get enough of our finger on the trigger to where we can control that trigger to the rear. So that's where the power comes in again. And the further away you are from your body, the less strength dexterity you actually have. So the more, the closer I can move it to that first distal joint, the more power and dexterity I'm going to have. And then this is where people really screw up. And that is when they, uh, when they, when they, like we talk about your finger needs to be on the face of the trigger. The smooth face of the trigger is where we want your trigger finger to be. And people will always tell me, oh yeah, it's, it's there. I can, it's there. Most of the time people are edging the trigger. They're edging it to the left by placing, putting pressure on the right edge of the trigger, or they're edging it to the right by putting pressure on the left edge of the trigger. So are you really on the face of the trigger? Maybe. So one of the things that I tell people to check is your trigger finger, the tip of your trigger finger. It should be at a 90 degree angle. If it's at a 90 degree angle, then chances are you've got it on the face. If it's not at a 90 degree angle, it's probably not on the face. So that leads us up to the last part of trigger management, which is the movement, what you were describing. And so we, we use mnemonics to help people kind of understand it. So we talk about the first step of the trigger movement, or actually the third step, because we use a countdown, is um, all the slop, all that free travel in the trigger system itself. That's three. You want to take out as much of that as possible right away. And this leads us to the most crucial movement of the trigger, which is the number two position, which is the slack. And this is where a lot of people don't appreciate how finite their trigger system is. Like a lot of times the responses that I get when during the debrief is I, I never knew my gun had a two position. I never felt that two position because they never took the time to actually learn how to properly move that trigger. And we also talk about this in the class where there's three speeds, right? There's full speed, half speed, and slow speed. So when you're starting this whole process out, you need to be moving at slow speed so you can actually feel that number two position because it's there. No matter how finite the trigger system is, it'll have a number two position. And being able to move that trigger right up to the wall, to sear wall, that's the key. And then the last step is that break, that um, just right there when you're, when you're standing on that sear wall, it's just this little bit of pressure. And Colonel Cooper used to always um, articulate it as a glass rod breaking. So everybody's probably broken mm. a glass rod just like that crisp break. And that's what we want. We want that crisp break right at the very end of that trigger movement. And then just be able to do that. And then eventually be able to do that, not just consistently, but now start to ramp up the speed so you can actually move through that process at, at a higher rate. Um, and when I see a shooter that's able to manage that trigger well, it means that they have an understanding of all three of those stages. And they can do that repetitively over and over and over. And there are times, man, it's like I'm in that cycle. And I'm like, Jesus, I can't, I can't miss. I'm just not going to miss. You mm -hmm. know, it's, you're just doing it so well that you feel everything. Your sights are right where they need to need to be. And that trigger is just so easy to manipulate, even at high rates of speed. I noticed that um, it's like time is sometimes going slower for me. And I'll be on the tr I'll be on the gun doing a demo at like a high volume uh, round count drill. And I'm all of a sudden just kind of like noticing. I'm like, oh, my God, I can feel that sear wall so well. It's like I'm not going to miss. It's just like it's so crazy. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this is so awesome. So yeah. um, that's what we try to articulate in the classes to people. And, and a lot of times it resonates very well. In your case, it resonated very well with you. Uh, other times people have a hard time because of one of those steps. They're not doing well. And it, and it obscures all the other steps because they're so focused on that. So um, it's tough 
trigger yeah. management is the uh, the bane of existence for pretty much everybody, you know, everybody that's trying to to gain acceptance into the next level, the higher level up from where they are right there. It's it's usually going to be trigger management. Yeah, uh, agreed. You know, because it, it is that one thing that you could be doing everything right. But if you're yeah. doing the trigger wrong, it oh. doesn't really matter. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you can have the best gun, look like you know what you're doing, have all the cool gear, and you're on the line. <laughs> and if you cannot move that trigger to the rear without disrupting the sight, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, so true. So true. Well, that's that's good advice right there. And, and, and apparently, the, some of some of what we're saying must be resonating with with a few of the uh, viewers out there because right here, there's comments ever saying, "Gonna dry practice all this right now," <laughs> and, and Tony saying, "Loading my snap caps now." <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, good. I hope that I hope they do take that uh, for action and get a little bit of opportunity to kind of feel that out. And you know, and and the way that we show it is where again the um. The way that we approach training is, is very different from most anybody. And one of the first things that we did during your, um, that when we're introducing that subject is we, we go into a dry fire, you know, both group mm-hmm. paced and self paced. And so in the self paced, we encourage the students to not actually be mounted on the trick uh, on the target itself. You know, don't go to a gun mount, actually watch what you're doing. Like yeah. look at your trigger finger as you're moving it so that you can actually see all three of those stages. And if you, if you can see, you're just gonna, you know, you're connecting kind of like the, the neuromuscular pathway there when you're actually watching what you're doing with the trigger. You, can have, you have a better chance of actually feeling that two position when you actually watch it. And then after you've done that uh, from a non-gun mount, well now you do it gun mount, and then you can kind of work a drill from a ready from the holster as you kind of go through the dry fire uh, process. So that's kind of like the, the best, the, I guess the best roadmap for success. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that too, because I have found that to be, especially in my earlier days of shooting, learning how to work the trigger correctly. Uh, I don't remember who first showed me that, but I remember just kind of turning, you know, in a safe direction, turning my gun to the side and just watching the finger through that process. Some people are more visual than others. In fact, yeah. I'd say a lot of people are very oh, visual. Yeah. And if you can feel and see what's going on, it, it just might be that one thing that you go, aha, you know? And, and so. that's exactly what it is. A lot of times that aha moment happens right then while we're actually in real time watching what we're doing. So we're sitting there watching that trigger finger move. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh my God, that's what it feels like. Number two. And, and you can see it in there. You can see it in their kind of like their persona, their attitude. It just like changes when they get it all of a sudden. It's like, it's like when somebody gets the inside joke that nobody else was getting, they're like, oh, right. I get it. And then, um, you know, sometimes the hard part is getting back to that, you know, because what happens is we start shooting and we lose sight of trigger management because we're overstimulated with something else. Yep. Maybe a timed event, maybe a distance shot, uh, maybe we're doing some gun manipulations and you kind of lose focus on that, yep. on that trigger management. So it's frustrating yep. for people. I get it. And, and, and 
you know, back to kind of where this part of the conversation started, that was what was so effective for me was uh, in your course was, it's not that I didn't understand those concepts or that I hadn't learned those concepts, but there's times where you kind of forget what you're doing. And, and just thinking, okay, don't go straight from one to three or three to one. Uh, you know, don't skip that second stage. Like just, rem, just, just reminding me of that. And I, and the whole weekend required me to focus on that to yeah. continue shooting consistently. So there'd be those times I'm like, Ooh, I know that shot was bad. Why was it bad? It was 99% of the time because I skipped right through that second stage. Okay. Let's just go back and let's really feel that second stage. Where's that wall? Where's that wall? There's the wall. Okay. Bang. And it's then it, and it works. So nice. It's so nice because so you're you're at a stage in your development when you're self-diagnosing, yeah. right? And and that's a fantastic stage to be in. That's like the stage that you want to live in. Self-diagnosis. It's hard to get there. Um, you True. have to first go through self-awareness, and that's the hardest stage of a shooter's development is self-awareness because a lot of times shooters don't know what they're doing, then they don't know. Um, maybe they don't know what they're doing wrong or, or maybe they don't know what to do right, but they also don't know what to do, the, what they're doing that's wrong. You know, so it's really hard for a new shooter to try to take all this stuff on. And it, it's just like, it's like this, this adventure, this self-discovery of sorts, and it can be very frustrating. So when you get to that self-diagnosis stage where, you know, like, it's like, yep, no two. And you heard it on the line all the time. No two, no two, no two. And it sounds like some sort of like, I don't know, some like, uh, some abbreviated code word for something really cool, but really just boils down to, no, you did not take, you, yeah. you did not apply the, you did not hit the number two step in your trigger movement. I mean, that's as simple as it is. You just did not, you went three, one. And yeah. oh my God, every time we're doing those drills and I walk down, especially after a while, you see, you, you see the, um, the propensity for some students to make the same mistakes over and over. So after a while, you know, by day two, day three, when we're doing all those diagnostic work, I know what the mistake is going to be for this shooter because historically he's done the same thing. And I walk down there, I'm like, yep, yep. So no two, no two, no two, no two. So yep. yeah, a lot of fun. Yep. Good, good stuff, man. Uh, although a question. Yeah. So I've been in that self-awareness stage for a while. Mm. Is there another stage beyond that? Um, I mean, <laughs> like what, what is the, what is the master guru stage where Jeff Gonzalez lives? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if it's the master. Um, so when you're at that self, I, I mean, self-awareness. So like, um, there's like the way I see it, there's like four ish, maybe five stages, right? Mm. Uh, the first stage is just, uh, self discovery where you're kind yep. of like, just, you're like a pinball machine bouncing off things. Or pinball bouncing in off things. Um, after self discovery, you get to kind of like the self um, awareness stage, which is like the second stage. Then from there, I believe the next stage is probably the hardest stage to get into, which is the self diagnosing, which is where you kind of know what you're doing wrong, right? You may not know what you're doing. In other words, you know when you do it wrong, right? It doesn't work. Something just was like, oh, crap, I didn't, I didn't. Take out the two. I didn't take out the two, right? That's self-diagnosing. The level of, above that is self-correcting, which is the ability to do that in real time. So as you're, as you're going through the motions, you're able to see the error beginning and be able to correct it in real time and still be able to make 
you know, the, either the time standard or the accuracy standard, whatever it was that you were doing. Cause we're all going to do that. I mean, we're all going to be rushed. We're going to be moving. We're going to blah, 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 blah. Things are going to come at you, but you've got to be able to self-correct in real time. And if you can correct and, and do that self-correcting in real time, it's a whole new, it's a whole new world. It really is because that's, that's that, that's that period. Of, that's where things I, for me, move in slow motion. You know, as I'm shooting, things yeah. are just kind of moving in slow motion. I maybe I might make a micro adjustment here, micro adjustment here. I mean, you don't really see that in, in, because it's happening at such a small level. You know, because we talk about task, subtask, and micro task level. So all the hard work is down here at that micro task level. And so a lot of times people don't see that because they're, they're, they're those changes, those corrections are so minute that you don't really the the naked eye really can't pick up on that stuff. So self self correcting to me is kind of like it because if you can stay at that level for the rest of your shooting career you're you're just you're always going to be making improvements because you're always taking you're always able to see the errors in real time and correct for them because you know what to do you you i mean you by that time you get to that level you know right from wrong and self-diagnosing is when you know that you did it wrong right but you still kind of did it right You, you it's like you're on a roller coaster you can't really get off the ride you you, you feel the trigger. You're just like, oh, crap. You know, you couldn't do anything about it. The difference between that self-diagnosing and self, or self-correcting is that you feel that trigger starting to dip a little bit. You still that pressure building, but yet you ease off of it just enough to then apply the right technique and break that shot perfectly, basically. So that's kind of where I feel like most shooters should strive to be is in that self-correcting level, if you will. And I'm sure there's probably a level above that. I don't know. <laughs> Like I don't, you know, the, the basically it's, I'm using the force to propel bullets now. <laughs> you know, that's like the next level above that. Don't don't sell yourself short. It's the Jeff Gonzalez stage. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, I don't know about that. But I, I, I do I do enjoy watching a student move through those those stages yeah. of their own their own shooting development because um, you can see like a lot of times that's how I kind of like assign. Like when I'm looking at a student, that's kind of how I think of a student. What stage are they in? Because it's going to determine how much work I have to put into them to get them to the next stage. Like um, a student that is at that self-discovery stage, I mean, it's like a, a newborn puppy. They're, they're, they want to smell <laughs> everything around them. They want to get into everything, you know, and it, it takes some development to get to that next one, which is self-awareness, when, to know what you're doing and know how to do it. And that's a tough yeah. one. And, you know, self-diagnosing is probably the, the one that I spent the most time in, in my shooting career, self-diagnosing for sure. Cause it took me, like I tell people, Hey, all of these corrective strategies that we use to help shooters become better shooters there, they were refined or discovered and refined because I had to make all those mistakes or I didn't have to, I made those mistakes as I was developing as a shooter. Um, so when I can sit there and talk from a first person point of view about these mistakes, it and I can see the shooter making them. I can relate to it a lot better, um, and and that's why you know you spend a lot of time that self diagnosis because you need to make all those errors on your own and be able to catch them and be able to start seeing them. You know, you may you may get it every yep. now and then. I still make. I mean, geez, I throw shots all the time. I mean, you saw that in class there, and I don't I don't harp. I don't get wrapped around the axle when I throw a shot. I mean, most of the time I know exactly why I throw a shot, and to yep. me that's more important than the actual missed shot. Is why did I miss that shot? And mm-hmm. trying to prevent that from happening. Because, I mean, here's the bottom line. Nobody's ever going to be perfect. I mean, you, you can't. If you, if, you are, if you are not making mistakes, then you are not 
pushing yourself. You're not at that, that self-correcting uh, ability because in order to self-correct, you have to make those mistakes. And the harder you go, the harder you push, the more you demand of yourself, the more mistakes you're going to see. And, and, you know, we said this in class, you know, failure is a gift. And mm. so you want to be pushing to that point where you are failing because when you are failing, there's, there's such important feedback that you get from that failure that at that self-correcting level, you're able to value and take that information and then hopefully get to that point where you can not make those mistakes again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to that point, if I was to kind of leave this with one last thought from my perspective, uh, and I tried to make sure I was implementing this in the course, that when, when you're when you're trying to uh, self-diagnose and self-correct, uh, well, r- let me back that up. If you allow your emotions to get in the way, it basically impedes your ability to do that. And, and, and that's been a struggle for me for a long time as a shooter is that you make a mistake, you're like, ah, dang mm. it. And when, the, and when you get angry, when you get frustrated, when the emotions get in the way, then you're not really able to, you certainly can't self-correct and it makes it very difficult to even self-diagnose, to even recognize why did that go wrong? Because exactly. you're, just, you're just angry, you're just emotional about it. And I think that would be something that helped me a lot through that weekend was made a mistake and I know what the mistake was, I know how to fix that, let's fix it, move on. Yeah, and that's the thing I tell people. It's like people get so wrapped around the axle with failing. And, and remember in the beginning we talked about like um, in the general brief, we talked about everybody sitting in this class has made a major step in their personal development by just being in this class and knowing what's at stake. And I tell yeah. people, like, you need to be prepared for failure because it's going to happen. Don't, don't try to avoid failure. And like, I mean, when I say that, what I mean is don't pull your punches, right? Because if we're trying to improve your shooting mm. skill, you've got to be pushing at that level to where we can see where the things are going to break down so that we can fix them. You know, I mean, you're not going to be able to get a Yugo to go, you know, Formula One race car speeds unless you build that chassis up to handle those speeds. That's the thing. I mean, I can get a Yugo to go at those race car speeds, but I have to throw it out of the back of an airplane. <laughs> that does not end well. So it's not an ideal situation there. So we have to build from the chassis up, and that's part of, part of building. Part of building means that you learn from your mistakes. I mean, as a constructor, you should know <laughs> about working <laughs> – from the, you know, your mistakes <laughs> and building from mistakes. <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> well, Jeff, it's been a, a, a wonderful time talking with you Likewise. for this uh, episode of the podcast today. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I think there's been a lot of, of just like truth bombs left and right in this conversation with you today. And so thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I'm very grateful. Real quick. What do you have uh, coming up in the near future for you? Whew. Uh, well, most of our classes are pretty much sold out the rest of this year. Uh, I think the only thing that I really have available, I might have one or two slots left in the December Los Angeles class. Other than that, oh. uh, yeah, 2020 is already looking really good. We're already booking 2020 right now. Yep. Um, I'm excited for 2020. It's gonna, we've got a lot of fun stuff. I mean, one of the things that, and, and this is actually applicable to our conversation we talked about this, you know, some people that have to work in a non-permissive environment. So next year we're going to be bringing online an NPE course, which will be, I'm excited about. Um, that'll be strictly involved in working in a non-permissive environment. I don't want that message to be confused. I'm not saying to break the law. I'm saying that in some cases your workplace has a uniform requirement that makes your normal carry what you might carry on the weekends very hard to pull off. 
you know, so like we're talking about formal wear, we're talking about business attire, we're talking about um, those types of environments where it's just not easy to uh, carry your go-to uh, blaster that you're very comfortable with on the weekends. So I'm excited about that class. That's going to be real fun. Nice. Awesome. And I know we've got uh, at least one individual watching today that is in the LA area. So if you've got a couple seats there, he yeah. might just be able to Perfect. make that work. That's awesome. Um, again, today, folks, uh, Jeff can be found, uh, and correct me if I get anything wrong or if you want to add anything to this list. Go for it. Trident Concepts, tridentconcepts.com. That's his, his, his training company. Great company, great training, great dude, as you can tell from today's episode. Uh, also, the range at Austin, where Jeff uh, runs the training program there. Mm-hmm. The range, Austin.com, down there in Austin, Texas. Anything Correct. else you want to add as far as people looking you up, finding you, you giving know. you money, whatever? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, certainly, you know, check out our products on the Pro Shop. That's a great thing. Um, you know, what we're doing, we're doing a lot of, I, I encourage people to, to use the resources that we're putting out there. You know, I've been writing a blog now for probably, I don't even know how many years, but I think I'm over, I'm over 750 articles that I've posted on our blog site. So you can get to the blog by going to our website. And then uh, our YouTube videos. We're doing a lot more stuff on the YouTube video channel. And those are those little, they're short and sweet, like two to three minutes tops. Just, you know, maintain, you know, stay on subject for that particular subject, whatever it might be. So I would encourage people to check those out because that is just a wealth of knowledge that's available at your fingertips. Nice. Awesome. And again, we thank today's episode sponsor, CCW Safe. Uh, check them out, ccwsafe.com. Again, Jeff, thank you so much, brother. It's been a good ah, chat with you. Always. So with that, folks, we'll sign on out of here. A reminder to train off and train right and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws the concealed carry podcast concealed carry inc concealed and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm related incidents and laws but things could be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this we cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast